you have your Bibles with you, you can open it up to the book of 1 Peter. I almost said Philippians, but caught myself. As I mentioned last week, we recently got back from a, a, a vacation, and we're blessed to go to the Olympic National Forest. And I'm not exactly sure where the National Forest starts and the park ends, uh, but part of the Olympic National Park uh, you can drive up to is called Hurricane Ridge. And as you drive up Hurricane Ridge, you can see a beautiful view of the Olympic Mountains. You, I don't know, it's probably, I, I think it's a 14-mile drive. It takes about 45 minutes up, up winding paths as you get to the top of this mountain range. And from it, you can see the Olympic Mountains. And just peak after peak, and then you can see a little plaque there that talks about the height of a, each of those mountains. Well, where we were at Hurricane Ridge is about 5,200 feet high. Well, as you park, and there's a little kind of visitor center there, there's a trail that you can take that's another 700 feet elevated above that. It's called Hurricane Hill. And, you know, when they tell you that something is wheelchair accessible, at least the beginning of the path is, you're like, we can do this. And uh, 700 feet is uh, not long for most of you who are adults, uh, but for, my, for me, my family, it felt like a lot. And I don't know if you've ever done any uh, hiking like that. I'm not even sure if it's fair to call it hiking. It was a fairly wide path still. Uh, but your legs start burning, right? That heaviness there, and you're like, I don't think I can keep going. And that they, they uh, whatever that uncomfortable feeling is of exercise. Uh, as you're going, though, you find yourself, if you've done any kind of hiking, increasingly thinking about where is this taking me? You have a single focus to, I want to get to the top. I want to see what the view is there. And from the top, it was indeed breathtaking. During that journey, I kept thinking about getting to the top. When I'm doing that, and maybe you're the same if you've gone on some kind of trail like that or some kind of hike, what I don't think about as much is, wow, I'm so privileged to be here. But that's useful to think about as well. The blessing of being on the journey. As Peter is writing to the churches in in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey, we saw last week that he refers to them as those who reside as aliens, or if in the ESV, those who are exiles. The Christians in Turkey and Asia Minor were suffering because of their commitment to Christ. We don't know how much the persecution was physical. If it was physical, it was probably more of a, a, a localized persecution that happened for, for intermittent periods. But what they continually had was being slandered, being maligned. Peter describes it as the fiery ordeal that they were going through. Peter refers to them as, as and, and we struggle for what a really good word is. Aliens is kind of a strange word because of all the uh, aliens that we think of. Exile is a strange word because that means you're forced out of a country. And maybe like sojourners or, or even strangers, but strangers falls apart too. Maybe sojourners, although archaic, is the best word. They knew that this world was not their home and that they were not at home in this world because of their obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. They were on a journey. And we'll see in First Peter that he encourages them a lot with where that journey was taking them. And what they were to look forward to, we'll, we'll see that even as we do our scripture reading this morning. But this morning in verses 1 and 2, Paul, Peter encourages them with where their journey began. With incredible privilege that they had of even being on this journey. Not just where they're going, but the fact that they could be on this journey at all. The privilege of being strangers. I'm going to read 1 Peter 1 verses 1 through 9 and then we'll pray. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, even as we looked at the uh, psalm this morning, We thank you for preserving your word for us. We thank you uh, for the perfection of it. We thank you for the truth here. And uh, even as I just read those verses 3 through 9, we see so much uh, how Peter is going to encourage the saints with a future that they have to look forward to for the full experience of the salvation which is awaiting them at the return of Jesus Christ. And yet this morning, uh, Lord, we're going to look at uh, verse 2. And I trust by your grace be humbled together as we think about what it means uh, for you to choose us, to have this incredible uh, privilege of being called to obedience, and to be sprinkled with the blood of your Son, to be entering into that covenant relationship with you, to be sanctified by your Spirit, to be foreknown by you even before creation. So, Father, we... Uh, do want to embrace our identity here as aliens and exiles, as strangers and sojourners. Lord, we know that we are uh, not comfortable here, Lord, that we are surrounded by uh, things that uh, you hate, activities you hate. We see inside ourselves that remaining sin which you hate. We long to be at home with you, but I pray that this morning we would be encouraged and revitalized by looking at your great grace to us in your choosing of us. Please, Lord, may that be refreshing to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. From the very beginning of this letter, the Apostle Peter's intention is to encourage the saints. He wants to give them needed perspective on their experience of what they were going through as strangers. In this verse 2, he's going to seek to revitalize their wonder, their awe in God's grace in choosing them. Verse 2 is kind of like a shot of adrenaline to someone who is having a heart attack. It's like a five-hour energy drink for sojourners. It's this burst of encouragement, this burst of revitalizing strength as he doesn't talk to them about all the great things that they are going to enjoy, but reminds them of God's goodness to them in choosing them. At first, as I was thinking about this verse, I kind of thought it was like walking through a forest and you come to a great mountain view. But the more I thought about it, it really is more about the privilege of starting off on this journey, this privilege of being a sojourner, of being a stranger. It's a look back to our adoption as God's children, and to the time when our salvation began. The saints in Asia Minor were experiencing persecution as strangers. They were going through life distanced from those that they used to be at home with. But they were more than strangers, more than exiles. They were also chosen. They were the elect. So Peter directs their attention to eternity past and to God's choice of them. Their being chosen by God was what led to their being strangers among men. Their privilege had led to their persecution. God's mercy had led to their being maligned, and his salvation had led to their being slandered. So Peter reminds them where this began, but to the purpose of encouraging them. 
quickly in this one verse we're going to look at this, this morning, or at least mostly focus on verse 2. Now, we see uh, two phrases here. If you have the New American Standard Bible, there's two phrases. It begins in, in verse 1, to those who reside as aliens. And that's one phrase, who reside as aliens. And at the end of verse 1, there's another phrase, who are chosen. In the Greek, there are two words that are right next together. They're both adjectives, and they can be translated as nouns. That's why if some of you has the ESV, you have elect exiles. And that's one way you could translate it. You could translate it as chosen exiles, chosen strangers. You could also translate it as, as the strange chosen or the exiled elect. Or you could look at them both as nouns, and that's what the New American Standard Bible does. First, but they have to break that up to kind of make it into acceptable English. First, and we looked at this last week, they are those who reside as aliens. And this week, we're going to look at the, at the end part of the verse, which really in Greek, those two words are, 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 are straight together in the beginning of the verse, who are chosen. So there's two phrases, who reside as aliens and those who are chosen. Chosen aliens, elect exiles. So this week we're going to focus on the fact that we are chosen. Now, before the New Testament was written, God and, be, and before the uh, arrival of the church at Pentecost, God had centered his redemption activity on one ethnicity, the people of Israel. And it wasn't that only the people of, of Israel became God's people. There were some Gentiles added. But overall, the story of the Old Testament is of God choosing Israel. In Deuteronomy 7 verse 6, it says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, referring to the people of Israel. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God has chosen Israel to be his people. Deuteronomy 10 verse 15 says something very similar. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples as it is this day. And that is the story of the Old Testament. It is God's working out his choice through the people of Israel. But when Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, the long-promised son of David, came to Israel, most of Israel did not follow their Messiah. Peter had often heard Jesus speak about why only some followed him. In John 6, verse 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one follows Jesus unless God the Father draws someone to Jesus. In John, verse, John chapter 5, verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Why do some follow Jesus Christ? Because those are the ones that Jesus gives life to. John 15, 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. And last in John 10, 16, we see that Peter heard that John, I mean, Peter heard Jesus talk about the extending of that choice to not just Israel, not even some of those in Israel, but to the Gentiles. In John 10, 16, Jesus just says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, which are not of Israel. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. While Jesus was on earth, he told that more than just Jews were going to be saved. And the book of Acts is the story of God's choice of salvation extending to more than Jews. It begins with Jews becoming part of the church, but then it extends beyond that. In fact, Peter had an important part to play. We talked about this briefly last week. When God sent him to the Gentile named, named, Cor, named Cornelius, and Cornelius and those with him received the Spirit and were brought into God's church. That would have been shocking for Peter, even though he'd been hearing some of this from Jesus. Really, the Jewish church was shocked by this development, and they didn't accept it at first. In Acts eleven seventeen to 18, Peter's explaining to, to, to them about Gentile conversion, Peter said, Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? 
If God wants to give them, the Gentiles, this gift of salvation, Peter's saying, I can't stop God from doing that. But he was surprised by it. He wasn't expecting this choosing of God from, from among the Gentiles. In Acts uh, 13, 48, it says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And that is still true today. Why does someone respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is because of God's choice of them. It is because he appoints some to eternal life that they respond to the preaching of God's word. So Peter, uh, and, and what one source kind of guessed that what had happened with Cornelius uh, happened around 35 AD, j- just a few years after uh, the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Christ. We learned last week that Peter's probably writing this around 60 AD. So here, 25 years later, Peter has had a long experience of coming to terms with the fact that God's salvation is not limited to Jews alone, but that he is bringing Gentiles into his church, that together they are one people, the new covenant people of God. When Peter writes to these largely Gentile audience, we looked at that last week in 1 Peter, he starts off by something that should blow us away every time we read it. Who are chosen? God had no reason except for his glory to choose anyone. He could have left every Gentile outside of his people. But in his grace, God extended his choice to include these saints in Asia Minor. Now, in verse 2, we're going to see that there's three prepositional phrases that explain this verb chosen. Who are chosen, the first is, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The second is, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And the third is, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Now, some of you who really love grammar will say, well, that looks like an infinitive there. I know some of you don't like grammar, and this is boring you now. Uh, but you can see in your note that, 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 that some of you have, it is unto obedience. So Paul's gonna, Peter's going to describe this phrase with three prepositional phrases. He's going to describe to them what it means to be chosen. Now, don't forget, this is just in the beginning of the letter. So he wants to stop them. He wants to pause them. He doesn't want them only to think about their being scattered, only about their being exiles, only about their residing as aliens in this world. He wants to bring their hearts into something rich and deep and wonderful and refreshing and revitalizing. And that is what he does here with these three prepositional phrases that describe being chosen. So this morning we're going to see three thrilling aspects of being chosen by God so that your strength to persevere as a sojourner is rejuvenated. I'm going to say that again. So we're going to look at three thrilling aspects. By God's grace, they will be thrilling to you. By God's grace, when we sing again at the end of service, you're going to be thrilled. We're going to see three thrilling aspects of being chosen by God so that your strength to persevere as a sojourner is rejuvenated. This is about your persevering, about your continuing in obedience. So three three thrilling aspects of being chosen by God so that your strength to persevere as a sojourner is rejuvenated, so that you're revitalized. So here's the first thrilling aspect, and you see it in your notes there. It's the source of being chosen. It's the source of being chosen. And that's how Peter begins in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And in a sense, this answers the question, And if you are the only saved person in your family, if you perhaps are the only saved person that you know of in your group of friends in high school, perhaps you're saved and you have siblings who aren't, and you've wondered, why me? Why why did God do this grace in my heart that I responded in faith to the gospel? Here's some of the reasons. This is the source of our being chosen. It is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. 
It is where our election begins is with God's foreknowledge. See, God's foreknowledge is more than just him knowing future events. Some will argue that God's foreknowledge means that he knows who's going to choose him, so he foreknows them. He kind of like beats them to the punch. He knows they're going to choose him, so he knows them. But God's foreknowledge, and we're going to see from verses here, involves God's choice. It involves his determination, not just a knowledge of a future event. We see this same word in Acts 2.23 where it talks about Jesus delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. This Jesus you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Peter there is not just saying that God knew you were going to crucify him, so he foreknew a plan where he would send Jesus because he already knew you were going to crucify him, right? This is the plan that God had made. This is his predetermined plan, his chosen plan. In 1 Peter 1.20, the uh, same word, but, 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 but the verb form is there. It says, for he was foreknown, talking again about Jesus, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Christ was foreknown by the Father even before creation. He was chosen for this work of redemption. <clears throat> Romans 8.29 is perhaps the most famous verse that has this word, Foreknown. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. God's foreknowledge, his knowing in a unique way, led to his predestining, his choosing. He chose according to his foreknowledge. So what is behind this foreknowledge? In the Old Testament, knowing has more than just knowing a fact. It has, it has relationship in there. It has affection. It has choice. In Amos 3, 2, it says, You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. And it's really interesting with that word there, you have chosen. That word chosen is the same as, and it's often translated in Hebrew as to know. You only have I known. You only have I chosen. So God chose saints according to his foreknowledge. God chose you because he knew you. Not in the way that he knows everything. Not in the way that he knows the placement of every molecule in the universe. But with an affection. His attention was on you in all eternity. There's a lot we don't understand about God and time. But in his timelessness, before matter was made, he knew you. He had decided upon you. Now, this wasn't just God going up to a case of donuts and and picking which one he wanted, right? It wasn't just kind of like, well, I guess I'll take a a, uh, chocolate maple bar. There are maple bar, and I'll take a frosted one. It just wasn't some arbitrary choosing. You know how you pick donuts for people you don't really know? You just want to get a scattering, you know? So I guess I'll throw some Gentiles in there and some men and some women. We'll just get a good mix. I think it'd be far more appropriate to think about the way that my daughters choose a donut. I didn't think about this ahead of time. I don't know if this analogy is going to break down. But they're thinking on the way to the donut shop. If they know we're going to get donuts to, to tomorrow morning, they're going to start telling me now. They're thinking about that donut. They've set out in their mind, I want one with a striped chocolate and maple. That's what God does for us, but not because we're sweet. Not because there's anything good in us. But he still foreknew us. He puts his attention on us from eternity past. He separates those whom he is going to save. One commentator says that no saint is a divine afterthought. Well, let's just throw in some of them too. Every saint has been foreknown from all eternity. And this is where it gets even cooler. In Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5, it says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. There's so many phrases there to stop on. He chose us in him. He chose us in Christ. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. Now, 
It is interesting in this verse that Paul, that Peter could have said, according to the foreknowledge of God. And no one would have faulted him for that. But he brings out according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Our being chosen by God is inseparable from the truth that the eternal God is the eternal Father of the eternal Son. Okay? Our being chosen by God is inseparable from the fact that the eternal God is the eternal Father. God the Father has eternally been the Father of the eternal God the Son. And there's a whole lot there we don't know about what that relationship for all eternity has been like. We know that they are eternally Father and eternally Son. In fact, we can speculate that when God made humans so that there would be father and children relationship, there's something there that reflects upon what that eternal relationship has been like. But our being chosen for adoption is only because God chose us to be in his Son. Our relationship with God as Father, our adoption, is the overflow of our being united to His Son. God chose us in Christ. And the ramifications of this are huge. We know God as Father because of His eternal relationship with God the Son. And this is where Peter goes next. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 3, all that choosing that I talked to you about, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because what we get in our salvation is, is, is being brought into this eternal relationship between Father and Son as we are adopted, as we become the brothers and sisters of Christ. One, one commentator writes, God's fatherly relationship to Christ is the theological foundation for his fatherly relationship to believers in Christ. Because of the shed blood of Christ, because of the resurrection of God the Son, we too can know God as Father. It's after his resurrection from the dead that Jesus says, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. God knew us, foreknew us as his children in his Son. Because of our union with him, we get in, I mean, really, we get in on this eternal relationship between father and son. And so we are adopted into his family. So what comfort for us as strangers in this world? What comfort for us as we are disowned by family members? What comfort for us as we are passed over for promotions at work, as we are ostracized in our schools? We are, and it feels much less painful, unfriended on social media. The eternal father who has eternal affection for his son has eternally had affection for you in his son. Like, I know we're trying to go into eternity past and figure out how this worked, but he foreknew you, he chose you in Christ. I don't know everything that went on in the father's mind. But he had love to overpour from his son into all of us. That's we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That love, that foreknowledge is what has distinguished you from this world. It's that love, that foreknowing is why you are different. You are strangers. This journey is hard because he foreknew you. Because he set his affection upon you. And I would say that as a long-term pattern, to be at home in this world is to not be known by God. Is to not be foreknown by him. See, these things go together. The elect are strangers. The chosen are those who reside as aliens. The selected are the sojourners. So he wants to encourage them. Yes, you're strangers. Yes, it's hard. Yes, you're going through persecution. But you've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So that's that first thrilling aspect, the source of our being chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Let's look now at the fruition of being chosen. The fruition of being chosen. That's where we're going to look at our second prepositional phrase here. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And um, 
I do uh, prefer a, a little bit with what the ESV says by the sanctification of the Spirit, or, or, or it says in the sanctification of the Spirit. And I use that uh, for this thrilling aspect here, the, uh, the fruition, which the word I hope I don't stutter on too many times, the fruition of being chosen, and I brought my wife in this choosing the word. She's not responsible for this one because I was really struggling, okay? What Peter's describing here is what happens in human time, okay? What our experience is, right? There's something that really happens, but it was something that was foreknown in eternity past. So I, I was like trying like, like the arrival of being chosen. Well, that doesn't work. The, the, the implementation of being chosen. No, that happened in eternity past. The execution of being chosen. That sounds a little negative. So I have the fruition of being chosen. Because it is in human time that we experience this. This being foreknown. See, being chosen by God occurred in eternity past, before creation, before the foundation of the world. And yet those who are foreknown are still born objects of his wrath. Listen to Ephesians 2.3. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, following what our hearts wanted to do, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. By nature. We were children of wrath. We had one thing waiting for us, every single one of us coming out of the womb. We had one, one destiny to look forward to, and that was eternal judgment. There are approximately 131 million rebels born on this planet each year. But God in his grace in eternity past foreknew some of them, some of those rebels, to be in his son, to be adopted as his children. But that eternal plan has to come to fruition in human time. And that's what Peter describes next. He describes that in this phrase, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, in the sanctification of the Spirit. The root of the word sanctification in Greek is the same word that we translate as holy. So we could say, by the holyfying, but we're not going to do that. The sanctification of the Spirit is how God makes you holy. It's how he takes you and devotes you 100% to himself. How he sets you apart for himself. How he makes you clean and ready to be used by him. We talked about saints a couple weeks ago. To add a, another analogy to that, sanctification is like going to the city dump in order to find a baby bottle. How much would you need to clean that baby bottle before you were comfortable to give it to your child? You know, the, the, the plastic nipple, the whole thing. How many times would you need to scald that with water before you're like, hey, I think she can use it now? It is infinitely more unlikely, infinitely more a miracle that we could be sanctified for Jesus Christ. Sanctified to be used by God, to be devoted to him, to be consecrated for him. But that's exactly what God's Spirit does for us in, in, in human time. If you are in Jesus Christ, you've experienced this. Sanctification is what God's Spirit does in history to bring the Father's eternal plan to fruition. It's, now, sanctification is used in different ways in Scripture. Some, sometimes it talks about the ongoing work of our becoming more holy and more pleasing to God. But this sanctification here refers to what the Spirit alone does at our conversion. This is the Spirit's work in our heart, not what we do along with, with through His empowering as we're unified with Christ and become more holy year by year. The focus here isn't how we are responsible to grow in our sanctification after salvation, but what the Holy Spirit does at the time of our salvation. Sanctification is the Spirit of God turning sinners into saints. Acts 26 verse 18 talks about some of this past tense sanctification that happens. He, 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 de he, de he describes how Paul is talking about how he was sent that the Gentiles may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Have been sanctified by faith. Past tense work. They have been sanctified. 1 Corinthians 1-2, Paul addresses the church in Corinth. 
as those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Yes, they were still in the process of becoming more sanctified, becoming more holy, but there's this work that's done that's past tense. They have been sanctified. 1 Corinthians 6.11 describes that again. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. So this is the sanctification that Peter's talking about, that past tense work of the Holy Spirit that accompanies the preaching of God's word. This work of sanctification, of consecrating of you, of devoting you totally to God, of making you belong to him, of cleansing you from your sin, never happens apart from his word being preached. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, the apostle Paul describes this in very similar language to what Peter uses here. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. The sanctification of the Spirit that's being set apart for God comes along with faith in the gospel. This is what happens, the sanctification is what happens after we hear the gospel. It's when the Spirit gives us new birth when we are born again. When the Spirit gives us new life when we are regenerated. When we respond to the gospel promises with faith. When the God grants us repentance when he sets us free from dominion to sin. This is the sanctification that Peter's talking about here. And this is thrilling. You are not what you were. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you have believed in this good news of Jesus Christ, that he's willing to forgive all who come to him in repentance and faith, then you have been sanctified. We know that God would have been just to leave every one of us in our rebellion, to never humble us, to never expose to us the weight of our sin. But he didn't. He extended grace on us because he foreknew us. He loved us ahead of time. He then sanctifies us through his spirit. Peter describes some of this sanctification in 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's what sanctification is, being rescued from darkness to light. He chose you to make you clean, to make you useful, to make you devoted to him, to make you fit for him. So as you are in this exile, reflect upon what you've been rescued from and what you've been rescued to. Your purpose, your identity is his people. You've been cleansed for him. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are forgiven. You are clean. You are holy. Accepted to him. Welcomed before him. This is why Peter wants to start off with this thrilling news. Because what God did in eternity past and for knowing them, he has brought to the reality of their lives through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And so far, what we're, we've t- been talking about is, is really what that great transfer that they went from, from dead to alive, from his enemies to reconciled, from impure to clean. And Peter's going to continue on with them looking back and what happened at their, at their conversion next? And that is this, the third thrilling aspect. The third thrilling aspect is the privilege of being chosen. The privilege of being chosen. If you have the New American Standard Bible, and, and, and I was just talking to, to, to our brother Ben about this last night. I'm really curious. Who has the New American Standard Bible with them now? Go ahead and raise your hand if you can. You raise it high, just just because I'm really curious about this. Okay, we're not going to, you know, this is is not a bad thing. Wait, wait, keep them up. It's going to be okay. I just want to, I want to look and try to get a sense. And and now, go ahead and put those down. Who has the ESV Bible with them? I don't know. I feel like the ESV people are a little bit bolder about that. Okay, now go ahead and put that down. There's nothing embarrassing about either of those. I'm I'm just kind of curious because I I feel like it's about 50-50, and I think that the numbers kind of show that. So I'm trying to kind of explain both of them because sometimes there's differences there. so in, in the New American Standard Bible, it says to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. The ESV is really very similar to that. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. But with both of those, tran- of those 
translations. It is extremely unlikely that, that and you see it in both of them, to obey, to obey Jesus Christ or for obedience to Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is coming in the first part of that verse is not likely. The Greek just makes that not very likely. Now, do we have to obey Jesus Christ? Yes. May Peter be thinking about obedience of Jesus Christ? Yes. But you, your New American Standard note, and, 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 and I hope you know how to follow the, those little numbers there, at least mine points me to my middle column, where it says, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I would say that that is the best, tra- the best translation of this verse, and I think all the commentators agree with that. So really what you want to do as you read that is, is kind of think about that uh, part there to obey Jesus Christ. Put Jesus Christ at the end, at the end of that phrase, because that's really where it is. It's to obey and be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Or, uh, or for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. But that phrase of, of Jesus Christ is referring to the blood and not to the obedience. Now, this is going to become important because in the Greek, those two words are put right next to, 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 to one another, or at least much closer besides the conjunction. I don't want to lose you. The two words, obedience and sprinkling, are, are put together. They are joined with, with a conjunction. And he wants you to think of those as one thought. If they're separated, you think, oh yeah, I'm saved to obey, and when I don't obey, I need to be blo- cleansed by the blood of Christ. I need to get forgiveness from Christ. And all of that is very true. But that's not what Peter's focus is here. Peter's focus is instead, and, and, and we're going to see where this comes from, an event that happens. Okay? Something that happened to you, where you were sanctified for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, as soon as we start talking about sprinkling of blood, you know, if the longer you've been in the church, the more comfortable you are with that. If you're a guest here this morning, that's weird, right? Because that's not something that we do. To understand this passage requires some some context from the Old Testament. Sprinkling of blood occurs several times as part of the Old Testament law, which God used for the people of of Israel. It was used in Leviticus 14, verses 6 and 7, as part of the cleansing of of a a leper so that that they could uh, rejoin uh, fellowship with God's people. It was used in Numbers 19, verses 13 to 20, of the cleansing of someone who had touched a corpse. It was used in Exodus 29 to 21 for consecration of a priest. These are just a few of the times that, that people were sprinkled with a blood that had come from a sacrifice. I hope you're not bored yet. What's really interesting, though, is when obedience and sprinkling are mentioned together. Okay, And that's in Exodus 24, verses 1 through 8. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Exodus 24, verses 1 through 8. Um, because I believe this is what was in Peter's mind when he talks about the obedience and sprinkling of blood. And I think after we read this passage, you're going to be, like most commentators, this is what Peter was thinking about. Exodus 24, verses 1 through 8. So this is after Israel's rescue from, from Egypt. Moses had been on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments from God. As, as, as well as other portions of the law. And this is instructions, this is God's instructions to Moses. Exodus 24, verses 1 through 8. Then God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, those are Aaron's sons who are going to become priests, and 70 of the elders of Israel. Bring a good sampling of the people in charge of Israel. And you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with them. That's because of God's holiness. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. So there's a commitment to obey there. Moses reads to them God's law. They're like, hey, we can do that. So verse 4. Moses wrote down all the words of the law. Then he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of, of the mountain. This is Mount Sinai where, where Moses had, had gone up to, uh, to, to, to hear God's law from God. He built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. Each of the tribes was, repented, was represented kind of by, by pillar of stone. He sent young men of the sons 
of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood, this is where it's going to start coming together, half of the blood and put it in basins. And the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the, on the altar. So some of that blood is sprinkled onto the altar where the sacrifices were. Then he took the book of the covenant, so God's law, and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. They are committing to obey. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. I know that this is very strange and very different. He takes that, 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 the rest of that blood and sprinkles it on the people. And whether that was on the pillars or the 70 elders there, it was representing that through blood, we are entering into a covenant relationship together. God entered into a covenant relationship with the people of Israel. Verse 8, so Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And right there we see a connection between obedience and sprinkling of blood. What Peter's referring to in here is how God brought the people of Israel into a covenant relationship with himself. That God enters into this promise, this binding contract with Israel. And Israel has said, we're going to obey. And that is sealed with a sprinkling of blood. In the Old Testament, the blood of sacrifices was essential to being in a relationship with God. And I've, I've spent a lot of time reading about this this week. It is tough for me to actually understand what does the sprinkling can, 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 can convey. We, we know that blood has to do with life. We know it has to do with sacrifice. But at the end of the day, they use blood for all kinds of things. Without blood, a covenant wasn't ratified. Without blood, sin wasn't purified. Without blood, items and people weren't sanctified or consecrated. So really at the center, the foundation of a relationship with God in the Old Testament was a sacrificial death symbolized by blood. Okay? Something had to die if there was going to be consecration to, consecration to God. If there's going to be purification of sins, if there's going to be a covenant relationship with God, blood had to be shed. That is true for us in the new covenant age as well, in this church age. The foundation of the new covenant is the death of Christ. And that is what those Old Testament sacrifices look forward to. It It is difficult to not imagine that when Jesus says, in Luke 22, 220 at the Last Supper, in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That Jesus was thinking about this beginning of the covenant people, this relationship between God and Israel at Sinai, when, when, when Moses says, this is the blood of the covenant which God, which God commanded you. See, Jesus is looking forward to his death and the blood that he's going to shed as the beginning of this new covenant between God and his people. Hebrews 9, verses 13 to 14, talks about the superior nature of Christ's blood. For the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh. So if in the Old Testament, goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, which is a whole other thing, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, who is perfect and blameless, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living and true God. What Peter's talking about, he's reminding them of how they entered in, how the people of Israel entered into a covenant relationship with God. And he's reminding them that this is what they were chosen for. They were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. They were chosen for a covenant relationship with God, a promised relationship with God, an unbreakable relationship with God. And that is because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice once for all. Christ gave his blood to bring us into this covenant relationship with himself. One in which our responsibility is obedience. And, and it is interesting that Peter talks about that. He does remind them, and the book is going to be a lot about obedience and how they are to live as strangers in this world. There is no new covenant relationship with God without obedience. 
It's true. There's no new covenant relationship with God without obedience. That does not mean we're going to perfectly obey him. But that is the stipulation. It is what we must do if we're going to be in a relationship with him. We are chosen for obedience and sprinkling, not just sprinkling. Not just cleansing of sins, not just consecrating to God. We are chosen for obedience and sprinkling. The call to believe in Jesus Christ is inseparable from the command to obey Jesus Christ. We are used to speaking almost exclusively about believing the gospel. But repenting from sin and believing in Christ is an act of obedience. 1 Peter 1, describes how we're saved. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your soul. We're not saved by obedience. But we must be obedient if we're going to be saved. Right? We have to come in obedience. And I know that sounds a little awkward. But it's true. Repentance is an act of obedience, right? Believing in Jesus Christ is an act of obedience. Now, that is only because of God's grace working in us. It is the sanctifying work of the Spirit, but those are acts of obedience. It is a command, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Romans 6, verses 17 to 18 describes in past tense how they were saved. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, past tense, you became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You were obedient from the heart to the truth, to the form of teaching to which you were committed. In contrast, rejecting the gospel is disobedience. To reject the gospel is disobedience for all people. God's word is authoritative for all people. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8 says that it describes the return of Christ, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The gospel has obedience built in it. Um, and I'll look at that verse in just a minute. In uh, 1 Peter four seventeen, a very... Sin, a very similar phrase is used. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of Christ? Judgment comes on those who don't obey the gospel. And so that is going to influence tremendously the way that you present the gospel to someone. Right? You're not just giving them an option. You know, there's many worldviews out there. Let me present Christ to you. Now, I'm not saying that that's wrong to do in itself, but the gospel is authoritative. They are judged if they don't obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, this morning, if you are not in Christ, if you have not repented, if you have not put your faith in him, you are not obeying the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 17, 30 to 31 describes how God had overlooked the times of of. of of ignorance, excuse me. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. And that declaring, it's instructing, it's requiring. One person has commanding all people everywhere to repent. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day you have to repent. Today. If you're not in his son. Our repentance is an act of obedience. Our belief is an act of obedience. Only possible through this sanctifying work of the Spirit. It's only through that regeneration. It's only because God foreknew an eternity past and sanctifies by Spirit that we can respond in obedience, that we can respond in faith, and that we can respond in believing in Jesus Christ. This is what brings us in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who obey Christ have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ, they've been cleansed, they're forgiven. They're consecrated. They've been brought into an unbreakable covenant relationship with him, sealed with the blood of Christ. If you have repented, if you put your faith in Christ, that, that blood of Christ has sealed the deal. It will never be broken. When, when, if, if, if you're married and you celebrate your, your, your anniversary, we remember God's grace in bringing us into that covenant relationship with our spouse, right? Our anniversary is a time in which we remember God's grace in bringing us into a covenant relationship. 
this uh, past week, we remembered that it was five years since we first brought our, our daughter, Nora, into our, our home. She was adopted about, about five months old. We remembered God's grace in bringing us into that, into that lasting relationship with our children. as They became part of our forever family, as we describe it. When we think of being chosen for obedience and sprinkling with the blood of Christ, when we look back on how we responded to that gospel call, and when we said, yes, I will obey Jesus Christ, yes, I need his blood cleansing me, we should be overwhelmed by this privilege of being chosen to be in this covenant relationship with him. Like like this was rescue. It was redemption. It is good news to be brought into obedience and sprinkling of blood of Jesus Christ. I think we can get confused. We can think of the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ as good news, but the obedience is kind of like some kind of like sad afterthought. Like, oh, I'm sorry to have to tell you, you also have to obey Jesus Christ. That is what a covenant relationship with our Creator is. It is obeying Him. If you have obeyed the gospel, if you have turned in repentance and faith, God has made a covenant with you. He's ratified that with the blood of his son. It's unbreakable. You have been cleansed by all that separated you from God. As his foreknown, as his chosen, you've been eternally welcomed into his presence. You are his people, a holy nation, the people for his own possession. You've been rescued from slavery to sin. You've been rescued to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. And so have you been rejoicing in this? I know it's, I know it's so easy to get into this day-by-day battle. Am I obeying? Do I believe that I'm forgiven for not obeying? And that is where a whole lot of our faith is working out. But there's also time to rejoice. God has entered into a covenant with me. An unbreakable covenant sealed with the blood of his son. I was foreknown in him before this journey began, before the foundation of the world. He chose me according to that foreknowledge. I know in my life he regenerated me. I love him. I've responded to the gospel. My, he is my only hope in life and death. Peter ends, this, this, uh, ends with a short prayer. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. May it be multiplied to you. He says, reminding them all of that, may you experience the fullness of God's grace, the fullness of his generosity directed to you and bringing in that relationship of peace with him, that, that relationship of being blessed with him. Well, that prayer... May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Is particularly sweet after what he's just said. We can be certain of that grace and be certain of that peace because the Father has foreknown you. The Spirit has sanctified you. And the Son has brought you into that new covenant relationship with himself through his blood so that you obey him. God will multiply his grace and peace to you, so that you will continue to sojourn as a stranger in this upcoming week. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come before you uh, needy. There's so much, Lord. Uh, There's so many responses we should have to this, Lord. Father, we come this morning humbled and, and just shocked that you would foreknow us that you would put your attention on us, that you would choose us in Christ, that you would want us to be his brothers and sisters for eternity, that you would want to bring glory to yourself and glory to him by bringing us into him, that your spirit would, would do this. Um, when we think about how holy you are and how sinful we are, that, 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 you, that, you, would, that you would come and sanctify us, that you would consecrate us, that you would make us yours, that you would do this for the, for the purpose of our obedience and sprinkling so that we would enter into this covenant relationship with you that never ends. Father, I think, I think when, when, when we think about this privilege, Lord, what does it, I don't say this lightly, what, is, what does it matter for strangers here? 
That doesn't mean that the trials we go through aren't fiery ordeals. It doesn't mean it's pleasant to be slandered, the objects of malice, ostracized. But what a privilege. So, Father, I thank you for that. Lord, I, uh, I do pray that you would be encouraging the saints, Lord. I pray that they would be revitalized, rejuvenated as they think about these aspects of being chosen, that their hearts would be thrilled, that they'd be so thankful to be obedient, that they'd be so thankful to be sanctified, so thankful to have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ, so thankful for that covenant relationship, so thankful to have been foreknown. And may that, uh, may that bring grace to them in this upcoming week so that they might enjoy the blessing of that relationship of peace with that they have with you. Lord, we do bring before you those here this morning who have been stubborn, who have not yet obeyed the gospel, Lord. It is authoritative. You do command people to repent. You do command people to put their faith in your Son. I pray, Lord, that that would be heavy upon them, but that the blessing would be, would, 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 would be impossible for them to resist, Lord. So please may your spirit even sanctify this morning those whom you have chosen in eternity past. In Jesus' name, amen.